Welcome to online worship at Chandler United Methodist Church. Oftentimes we come to worship because we are looking for meaning in our lives. We're trying to recognize where to find it. And being followers of Jesus means that if we want to know something, we go ask Jesus. Jesus talks about meaning in this life and he says as much as we would like to serve both the way of the world and the way of God, they don't line up. And eventually we have to make choices. Jesus says choosing the way of God, being honest and decent, living with intention about the effect of our actions on others, responding to suffering in others with compassion, and giving sacrificially are all ways of deepening meaning in this life. If we want to know something, we go ask Jesus. I want to invite you to make use of the resources on our church website to deepen meaning in your life. Our scripture lesson today is the incredibly engaging story of Naaman, the Assyrian general. And part of what makes this story so compelling is the use of dramatic, in fact, vivid contrast where, where you expect power to be versus where the power really is. It's great about contrasts all through this story. There's Naaman, the great general. He's a great man. He's highly decorated, highly accomplished on the battlefield, favorite of the king of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, incredibly powerful, victorious in battle after battle, and even a vessel of God's own work. The Old Testament writers tell us that God has used Naaman to defeat the Israelites on the battlefield to demonstrate that Israel is failing in its covenant with God, that Israel is falling from God's ways. Naaman is unstoppably powerful, but Naaman has a problem. Naaman has a dreaded, incurable skin disease. Great and powerful Naaman, who commands others in battle, commands respect from everyone, including the Assyrian king. Naaman, who has resources and is searching, cannot find a cure to buy. Naaman finds one day that he is offered help, simply offered words, by a little Assyrian slave girl who had been scooped up and carried off in a battlefield raid. This little Israelite girl helps Naaman, tells Naaman, go see Elisha, a prophet in Israel. Before setting out, Naaman commands the attention and support of his king who loads him up with treasure and a letter to the king of Israel, and an entourage. When the king of Israel receives this letter, he begins to read it, and he begins to shake. He, he is terrified. He is imagining that this is an unpassable 
test, he receives this information as a challenge that he must accomplish the impossible task of healing Naaman or he is going to find himself in big trouble with his exponentially more powerful neighbor to the north, the king of Assyria. And while the king of Israel trembles, the humble prophet Elisha catches wind of Naaman's arrival and intercedes. He just says, Elisha just says, no sweat, king, send him to me. So Naaman's entourage rolls up in front of Elisha's shack, expecting a carpet to come rolling out the front door for for the great man to walk on, expecting fireworks in the sky, and then incantations and flamboyant gestures and pronouncements of wisdom from ancient sources and scrolls of step-by-step do-it-yourself healing instructions to be offered for the big man, the great man, Naaman. But Elisha has none of that. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet Naaman. Just sends a few words, instructions that don't even warrant writing down with a servant. The instructions are simple. Go wash seven times in the River Jordan. And Naaman hears this and says, What? that's all you've got to be kidding no incantations no fireworks no servants coming out to carry my bags for me get me comfortable begin to administer liniments to my skin anoint my fingers with some mysterious ungent slather me in healing ointments tell me to relax let the magic work put cucumbers over my eyes none of that what Instead, you're telling me all I need to do to be healed of this terrible disease is wash in that stinking ditch of the Jordan River? We have far better rivers than that in Syria, and those rivers don't smell like the sheep and the goats upstream. Naaman is offended, and Naaman snorts through his nose as if. He rolls his eyes as he mutters, that is so beneath me. And then he gives orders for to head for home. And once again, it is his servants who rescue him, help him. Naaman's servants were very wise. They say to him, if the prophet had asked you to do something incredibly difficult, like, say, climb Mount Everest or run a marathon or walk to the North Pole, you would have done it, right? Naaman pauses. He thinks for a second. He twists his face, and then reluctantly he nods. And with that, Naaman's servants help him to follow Elisha's instructions and go wash in the river Jordan. And lo and behold, Naaman emerges healed. And the text tells us his flesh was restored like that of a little child. What are we to make 
of this incredibly engaging story? Where are we to see ourselves in this story? Where are we to see this story in us? Well, I'm not sure exactly how to cushion this or say this in a nice way, but by global and historical standards, we are Assyrians in this story. That is, we live in the empire. We are citizens of a superpower that dictates how things will be in a good portion of other nations. And part of the reason other nations act with such defiance toward us is because of the fear engendered by the power of our nation. Most of us have the trappings of power and privilege. We have cars and cell phones and computers and comfortable beds to sleep in and all that stuff that is expected to secure and comfort our lives. We are not unlike Naaman, surrounded by his entourage and packing heavy for travel. He looked, and we look, on those who do not have such things in kind of an odd way, as if they are missing something. We kind of mutter to ourselves, oh, those poor people. And there's that contrast for us, again, where we expect power to be and where power really is. When Naaman journeyed, down to that tiny neighboring third world country of Israel. Naaman made sure that everyone would know who he was wherever he went. He brought his caravan and a king's treasure with a letter of introduction, all of which turned out to be of no use whatsoever. These things had not kept him from developing this dreaded disease, and these things could not treat that dead, dreaded disease, could not even purchase a cure. Something else was needed. N notice that. In this story, Naaman has arrived at that place where he had to leave behind power and prestige and walk down the embankment into the stinking Jordan River. And the irony is that healing seems always to begin when we acknowledge our real location, when we acknowledge our impermanence, our brokenness, our vulnerability, our incapacity to be large and in charge. The minute we say, I have a problem, a difficulty, a challenge, an impossible situation I can't sort out, can you help me? Strangely, it, it is in this moment when we humble ourselves and begin to tell the truth about our location when we permit that we are not above, that we are not excused from, we are not exempt from the equalizing power of human suffering. When we can just be human, 
we encounter a graciousness and understanding that can only come when it is just us. I'm not above, you're not below. You're not above, I'm not below. It's just us, eye to eye. Instead of commanding presence and dominating others, we yield ourselves in humility. We begin to learn reliance on strange guides, people we never would have noticed before. And they get us where we need to go. In Naaman's case, it was a displaced little girl scooped up in battle and brought home to be a house slave. It was Naaman's other servants who came along to manage the bags and the travel. They experienced a new power granted them simply by being heard, listened to, no longer invisible. This is the art of the best leaders the best bosses. This is simply good parenting. To leave behind the top-down command structure which demands that employees and offspring exist only to do what we tell them to do, when we tell them to do it, and instead acknowledges how much we don't know and respects how much they do know and invites their input, their insight, their buy-in as partners in the task before us. My third grade teacher was from the top. You will sit quietly while I explain things and tell you what to do and then you will do your work quietly at your desk while I wait to use my red pen on your work. On the first day of fourth grade, as we entered the classroom, our teacher was finishing up stacking her books on her desk. And then she came around and she sat down at a desk with us. She sat among us. She introduced herself to us and then she said, I have a problem and I'm hoping that you can help me. The school board has determined that you are ready to learn all of that that is on my desk, and it is my job to teach it to you. And she looked at us, and then she looked at the material on her desk, and she said, that looks to me like a lot of material to get through. And we looked at all of the books on her desk, and then we looked at her. And she looked at all of the books on her desk, and then she looked at us. And her eyes got really big for a moment. She looked a little overwhelmed for a second, and a bit forlorn. And then we sat up in our chairs, and we leaned into the partnership which she was inviting. Why, yes we would be attentive and learn the best that we could. And you know, I, I don't think that she had to tell us even once to quiet down or pay attention. Nine and 10 year old fourth graders 
who have been so entrusted with such important work will police ourselves and each other. We would say to one another, shh, shh, hush, we're going to get behind. And periodically, usually on a Friday, she would tell us how we were progressing. We were always doing good work. We were always ahead of schedule. And a couple of times, because we had completed the required material, we were rewarded with an easy day where we got to watch a movie. We listened to music on the turntable while eating pizza delivered from the cafeteria to our classroom for lunch. We had Rice Krispie treats for snacks and chocolate milk all around. You know, I cannot recall for you the name of my third grade teacher, and to be honest, I don't care to. We loved Mrs. Robinson, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. May LaVon Robinson. And we did everything we could as her partners. We can look at the story of Naaman and find evidence or proof that sometimes God does use powerful people for God's purposes. And that's a nice idea, especially when we want an affirmation of our accomplished power position. But if we linger over the whole story, we might notice the deep calm in the story of Naaman is that the way of God does not rely on bank or popularity or power to command. Quite the opposite. The way of God requires us being humbled enough to seeing ourselves as we really are and being willing to be there where we really are and there. Sometimes in the smelly ditch where life stinks is where the healing comes. May the Spirit of God whom we know through the person of Jesus Go before to show you the way behind to nudge you forward when you are too frightened to move. Above to watch over you. Beside to be sometimes the only friend you have in this world. And within to give you peace. Be always in peace. Amen.